politics, this is the season for it, isn't it? We got our midterm elections right around the corner. And so all the prognosticators are out there and they're trying to take the temperature of the American electorate and to try to make their predictions on whether the Democrats are going to retain control of the House and the Senate or if the Republicans will win back one or both houses of Congress. And and then we know that right after the midterms happen, we know what comes next, right? People will begin to declare if they're going to run for president or not. And so now people are wondering, is President Biden going to run again? Is President Trump going to run again? Or are there going to be other people who challenge either one of these men to try to take control of the party? And really, it's all a question of who's going to drive the agenda? Who's going to set the talking points? Who's going to have the authority? And it brings up a very interesting question for us, doesn't it? And that is, who sets the authority in our lives? Who drives the agenda in our lives? Is it the talking heads on TV and the radio? Is it a politician? Is it ourselves or somebody else? Or is it our Lord Jesus Christ? And really, as Mark kind of begins his gospel, and we introduce this theme of empowered, right in chapter one, the first question that Mark wants us to wrestle with is, who has the authority? Who do we recognize as the one who has authority? I want you to see it with me this morning in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 45. Mark 1, 16 through 45. John Mark writes, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, the fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And they helped many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. 
Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But he was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus is preaching throughout Galilee. That's where we left off last week. If you remember, John the baptizer, he's imprisoned, and Jesus is going out and he's preaching. He's preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand to repent and believe. And so here he is, now he's at the beach, and he's walking along, and this is the message that he's preaching. And he sees these fishermen, Peter and Andrew, and he says, hey, come follow me. He's preaching this message of repentance, and now he says, hey, come follow me. And For rabbis in those days, this was not necessarily unusual. It wasn't unusual for rabbis to try to get followers, people who would follow him, and to start a rabbinical school so that you could become a rabbi. And But the thing that was unusual about this, though, was that he was asking fishermen to be those disciples. Because think about it, if you're starting a rabbinical school and you want to become this rabbi of recognition and someone who people look at you and they think, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's someone who speaks well and we should pay attention to what he says. Well, then you want really good disciples. I mean, you you want people who are going to kind of spread forth your word who people trust and listen to. And to find those type of people, where are you going to go? Probably the synagogue. And you're going to look for the young men there who are religiously inclined and, and go through all these acts of service and profess how much they love God. And you look at them and you say, oh, these are the guys that I'm going to pour into because they're so religiously inclined. They love God so much. These will be great students for my rabbinical school. They will make my name famous. But Jesus, he doesn't go to the synagogue to find his disciples, to start his rabbinical school. No, he goes to the beach and he finds fishermen. You know why that's so unusual? Because what do fishermen touch all day long? Fish. And oftentimes, dead fish. And every time you touch a dead fish, what happens? Unclean, defiled, no longer fit for temple worship. You can't be with the religious community. You're always on the outside. And so when you talk about like religiously uh, like inclined people, Well, fishermen are near the bottom of the list because they're never fit really to worship with the religious community. And yet it's these guys that Jesus chooses. And he says, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And don't read past this next section too fast because it says, immediately they leave their nets right there on the beach. I mean, Mark loves that word immediately, doesn't he? Did you, did you catch how many times he just uses it? Everything is going so fast. They, and immediately they leave everything on their nets. They leave their nets on the beach and they follow Jesus. And Jesus goes on a little further, sees James and John. Immediately they leave their father in the boat with the servants and they just start following Jesus. I mean, this is incredible. What is it about Jesus that grown men just immediately leave everything to follow him. I mean, what is it about Jesus that they just leave their livelihoods, everything, everything they've worked so hard for, and they just follow him? 
It'd be one thing if they said, wow, I'm really honored that you would choose me. Let me, let me think about this for a moment. Um, let me just get my affairs in order, make sure everything's situated, and then maybe I'll go. You know, Peter, he could have said, you know, first, let me just go and talk to my wife and see if she'd be okay with this, you know, changing professions and everything or entering in this rabbinical school. Like, let me make sure she'd be all right with that. They don't do any of that. Just immediately they follow him. I mean, these guys, you know, in those days, you would train your sons to take over the family business. Zebedee, he probably worked really hard to establish this fishing business. They had multiple boats and everything. And what happens? Immediately, they leave it all, all of it. I mean, this is their future. This is their livelihood. This is everything. They just leave it all to follow Jesus. They don't even ask any questions. Isn't that incredible? Follow you? We'll follow you where? For how long? Fishers of men? That's kind of strange. We've always fished for fish. What does that even mean? They leave it all. They just go. They follow him. Why? Because there's something so captivating about Jesus. There's something so intoxicating about Jesus, something so compelling. Why? Because you recognize that he has all the power. He has all the authority. There's so much goodness in him. There's so much love in him. There's just something different about him. If you know Jesus, you know, you'd leave it all too, wouldn't you? I mean, if you really have a relationship with Jesus, you're not just going through religious motions and boxes and everything. If you really have a relationship with Jesus, you know the same thing. I would leave it all. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whether it's Belgium or wherever, here, I don't need to be a pharmacy technician anymore, a sprinting store. I'm just, let's go to Belgium because they need gospel churches there. And it's the same thing. Whatever cost, I'll pay it because Jesus is calling. There's something so captive. And if you know him, you know that to be true. Why? Because he gives you purpose. He gives you meaning. He gives you reason for being. He says to us, I've chosen you now to be the light of the world. I've chosen you now to be my ambassadors. I've chosen you now that as you're going to make disciples. And when you hear that from Jesus, you say, I'll disrupt my life. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to stop and consider my options. I don't need to weigh things. When I know Jesus, I'm in. Why? Because he calls you. He chooses you when you wouldn't even choose yourself. I mean, you think these fishermen are like, yeah, it's, it's no surprise that he chose us to, 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 to follow him. Yeah, we, I mean, we're going to make the best disciples. Yeah, I can see why he picked us. No, these are fishermen. These are foul-mouthed fishermen. They probably curse like sailors, right? I mean, we see Peter doing it later when he denies Jesus. These are not like these great God-fearing people. No, he chose them when they wouldn't even choose themselves. And he does the same thing with you and me. Even when we look at ourselves, we say, my, my life's a mess. <laughs> if people really knew me, I don't know that they would listen to anything I say. But the thing about Jesus is, he doesn't just make you better. He makes you new. He redeems all that past. He redeems all that ugliness. He reclaims it. He makes us new so that we can be fit for service in his kingdom. It's incredible. You know, it was one thing when Jesus was walking along the beach and calling, talking to fishermen. It was one thing when he was doing something like that. People were used to having conversations. It's kind of out of the way. That's fine. 
It was one thing when he kind of starts his rabbinical school and gathering disciples. People were used to rabbis gathering a group of people. And in those days, you'd actually live with the rabbi. You'd eat with them. And most of the things you learned as you were discipled was not simply the formal lectures, but it was just the time around the table. It was just the time doing life. It was those informal, unscripted moments that you learned so much. And the people would be fine with that. The religious system, they'd be fine with that. That's okay. But when Jesus entered the synagogue, it was a whole other thing. Because if you were a rabbi, the way you would teach would always be by quoting other rabbis. So you would say, hey, rabbi so-and-so said this about the scriptures, so this is what we believe. Rabbi so-and-so said this about God, so this is what we believe. And if you wanted to challenge anything like that, you would have to quote a superior rabbi. That's how the argument went. So if I were teaching at a synagogue this morning, and I were to say, hey, Rabbi Junior said this, and you were to say, well, wait a second, Rabbi Senior said this, well, then you would win the argument. Not because the argument was better, you just quoted a superior rabbi. And now here comes Jesus. He doesn't quote any other rabbis. He doesn't say, hey, this other rabbi said this. No, what does he say? You have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother has already committed murder in his heart. You have heard it said from all these other rabbis, but I say to you. Can you imagine how much that just infuriated the religious system? I mean, you see, the religious people of the day, they couldn't stand Jesus because he challenged everything that they believed in, and especially the powers that be. They hate him because he challenged everything. You have heard it said, but now I say. See, the thing about Jesus is, he doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth. Jesus doesn't just describe reality. He defines reality. He creates reality. And so he challenges everything because this is someone who is speaking who has the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate expert on everything. And so Mark, he's setting you up to understand this is why the religious establishment will hate him so. This is why they want him gone. This is why they'll kill him because he challenges their whole system. He challenges all of their power and all of their authority, and they don't want to lose it. But it's not just that Jesus knows what he's talking about. It's not just that he's an expert and he has all this knowledge. He's also the one who has the power and the authority to reach into any circumstance and do something about it. And so we see that next. Mark, Mark, he takes us And he shows, okay, his teachings are weighty, but also his actions are the same way. So Jesus, here he comes into the synagogue, and there's a man there. He's demon-possessed. We don't know all the details. Mark doesn't give us a lot. But all we know is this, that of all the people in the synagogue, the first person to recognize who Jesus was was the demon. The demon knows. He says, what, what, what are you doing? Are you coming to destroy us, Jesus of Nazareth? We know that you're the Holy One of God. 
And Jesus shuts him up because he's not going to allow a demon or any demon to testify about him. So he silences him because his praise or his recognition is not going to come from demons. And then you see that the light pushes out the darkness, right? The presence of Jesus begins to push out the presence of the demon. Why? Because light always pushes back the dark. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. The rule of God is at hand. And now it is here and it is pushing back the darkness. And you know what? Sometimes we're afraid to believe that, aren't we? Sometimes we're afraid to believe that the light of Christ in my life actually pushes back the darkness in our culture. And so what do we do? We, well, we huddle together church buildings, afraid to really go out and impact our community. We cloist together in safe places because we don't know. Can we really make a difference? It seems so dark. It seems so tough. I mean, here in Belgium this morning, 1.3% believers. That's a lot of darkness. Can, can God really work? And then we're almost surprised when we hear stories about Rudy and Deirdre. Wow, it's incredible. And not surprised and amazed in a good way, but surprised in a way that really illustrates our unbelief, our disbelief. See, light always pushes back the dark. You know this, every time you turn on a light switch, right? The light wins. And that's how it works. The light always pushes back the dark. Well, immediately, Mark used it again, Jesus leaves the synagogue. Peter's mother-in-law is very sick, very ill with a fever. And Jesus, I love the picture of his compassion here. He goes and he takes her by the hand, and he heals her. And immediately, she gets up, and she begins to serve them. Now, if I wanted to make a joke here, I would say that, ladies, as soon as like, Jesus like, touches your life, you just get in the kitchen, and you start serving people. But I'm not touching that one. No way. <laughs> the thing is, when Jesus touches your life, it doesn't matter who you are. You serve people. Why? Because you've been loved, you've been served by this suffering servant, and you've been loved so outrageously, so incredibly. You say, I can't help but serve. There's this contagiousness about it, right? There's this joy, it overflows. I, now I must serve. And this, this is Peter's mother-in-law. She just, hey, I'm, well, I got to serve. I got to do something. I got to demonstrate this love because I've been loved so, so crazily. And so this is what happens. You can't help but share the gospel. And you will see this over and over and over and over again throughout Mark. That when people really recognize who Jesus is, when they have this relationship with him, when he touches their life, they can't help but serve. They can't help but share. Why? There's this joy. You're not just a better person. You're a new person. And you get out and you, and, and you do things. You love people. And one of the ways this shows up, I think this is so beautiful, and right in this little passage did you see for Jesus, it doesn't matter the size of the crowd. He could be in a little cottage, just a few people present, and he'll touch the hand of a woman who needs to be healed. He can be in a synagogue, probably with lots of people there, and it doesn't matter. There's someone there who needs a demon driven out, and he heals. For Jesus, the size of the crowd is always incidental because his focus is on the person. It's on, the, it's on the individual. I love you. I serve you. have an issue. You need to be loved. You need to be served. You need to be healed. You need to be restored. You need to be made whole. The people watching, that's great. They can witness this. It doesn't matter how many. 
And so that becomes a challenge for us. Do we serve because people are around to pat us on the back and tell us good job and encourage us? We need that, sure. It's good to be encouraged. But that's not the motivation behind our service. No, it's always motivated by love because we've been so loved. And Jesus, he demonstrated this time and time again that it doesn't matter the size of the crowd. It does not matter the location. It does not matter the day. He doesn't care if it's the Sabbath. He's going to be healing people. He's going to be serving people. He's going to be restoring people. You'll see this again if you skip ahead. Jesus and the leper. And I was, I was reading a lot about leprosy this week, and it was interesting to me that leprosy is contagious, but it's not quite as contagious as we often think. Um, and there's also multiple kinds of leprosy, at least three that I was reading about. Um, and one of the kind, a kind that you see often in Scripture, and probably that this man had, uh, was the kind of leprosy that as it advances, you develop these white scales on your body. And so sometimes lepers were referred to as being white as snow because their whole body would be covered in these white scales. It'd be painful even to look at, or difficult even to look at. And so obviously it's going to scare people. These people are ostracized. They're out of the camp, all kinds of things. Uh, and in fact, I was reading that in the Middle Ages, the church in the Middle Ages, what would happen is the priest would come and he'd be carrying a crucifix and they would actually go through a funeral service for the leper while the leper was still alive. So he'd march down the aisle with the crucifix, the leper following behind him in uh, black robes, and then he would pronounce the burial rites, the priest would pronounce the burial rites over the leper. Basically, the leper is now dead. And other lepers would be allowed to kind of look and viewed this ceremony from the outside. So they put like little slits in the walls of the building. They were called leper squints so that the other lepers could come and just kind of peek in and watch the service because then they would see this leper who would now be joining their camp, their colony, because he's dead. He or she is dead to the rest of society. Now, in New Testament times, people are no less compassionate. Uh, they had to walk around wearing masks, and everywhere they go, if they ever got close to someone, they had to just yell out, unclean, unclean, so that no one would come close. And yet, here's Jesus. Here, here's this leper who probably has advanced leprosy, probably painful to look at. He's been ostracized. He's on the outside of camp, and everybody knows you don't get near a leper. And here comes Jesus, and he sees the leper and he's going to reach out to touch him. And can you imagine in that moment just what everyone around would be thinking? Like, Jesus, don't touch him. Like, they're probably even shouting, no, Jesus, you're, you're going to become unclean. You're going to be defiled, Jesus. You're, you're going to be ostracized. Don't touch him, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out and he touches him. He could have just spoken it. He has that authority. He has that power. We see it. But this man who probably has not been touched in years, he reaches out and he touches him. And this amazing thing happens. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The man becomes clean. Jesus doesn't become defiled. The man becomes undefiled. And he touches so personal, so beautiful. And then Jesus gives him instructions. Hey, you need to go straight to the priest, 
follow the commandments of Moses and how, like, you demonstrate and how you provide proof that leprosy's been cured. Well, I mean, you can read through the Old Testament. This does not happen very often, okay? If I had seen a leper cured in, like, hundreds of years, these priests had never seen one in their lifetime. And Jesus gives the guy a stern warning. But hey, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone as you're going. Why? Because he's got so much ministry to do. He can't have people just coming from all over. He's not going to be able to enter the town. All the lepers are going to be coming out. Everyone's going to want a miracle, want a healing. It's going to disrupt his, his, his ministry here for a little bit. He's not ready for that. So just go straight to the priest. And the ceremony that would then happen would be the priest would take two, dove, or two birds and the one bird would be killed, and the other bird would be dipped in its blood and then set free. And it was this picture that a price has been paid, the sacrifice has been made, the leper is cleansed, he's, he's carried off this disease. And so that was what this is picturing. But the man, the leper, <laughs> he doesn't go to the priest, does he? No, he can't make it there. Why? Because when Jesus touches your life, there is this joy. There's something so contagious. It just can't help but get out. And so he goes, and everybody he sees, he just can't keep quiet. There's this man who healed me. I was a leper. Look, look at me now. I'm cleansed. I'm cleansed. Everyone, everyone he goes to, he's telling everybody. This guy becomes a challenging picture for us, doesn't he? Here's a man who's told... Keep quiet. Don't tell anyone. Just go to the priest. He's the only one I want you to tell. And we're told, go share. Go. You're my ambassadors. Go tell people. Make disciples. The man, man, you could not shut him up. I mean, he was telling everybody he could. And us sometimes, (laughs) well, sometimes it can take a lot to get us to talk, can it? Sometimes we just stay quiet. When we're told to share, we stay quiet. When he's told not to share, he goes and tells. And so that raises the question, so how do we share? How do we live this empowered life? How do we not just stay quiet or stay safe or stay huddled together? How do we live the empowered life that Jesus has for us? I want to give you three principles from the life of Christ right from this passage, okay? We kind of just kind of glossed over it this morning. If you go back to verse 35 and kind of read, you'd you'd see this. I'm not going to reread the passage to you, but it's just lessons from the life of Christ. And the first is this, be diligent in your devotion. Be diligent in your devotion. The Bible says that early in the morning while it was still dark, that Jesus gets up and he goes to a desolate place and he begins to pray. And we read all the events from the previous day. It was actually one of the busiest days recorded in the life of Christ. I mean, he's up in the morning. He's doing all kinds of things. He's, he's, he's healing. It's Sabbath day. He's, he's healing Peter's mother-in-law. He's going to synagogue. He's teaching. Maybe he went to multiple synagogues. Who knows? And then as soon as there were three stars in the sky, that's how you knew that Sabbath had ended. You'd see three stars in the sky. And then, hey, Sabbath's over. Now we can do whatever we want. And as soon as those three stars are in the sky, what happens? It says that people are bringing their sick to him. And Jesus is healing. Who knows how long this went on for? But it was a full day. It was a busy day. I mean, Mark tells us immediately, immediately, immediately. It feels like he says it about 12 times. And who knows what time he went to sleep? I assume it was a late night. He was still a man after all. He had to have been tired. And the next morning, he doesn't sleep in and say, man, that that was a busy day. That was was a doozy. I I just just need a little more rest today. 
No, he gets up early. The, the disciples, they don't even know where he is. Like, where, where'd he go? We, we've been looking for you all day, Jesus. Where, where? And, he, and he goes and he finds a desolate place, just a, a quiet place where he can be alone and he can pray. Now, if Jesus needed that to live the empowered life, I'm guessing maybe we do too, right? That no matter what, we're going to be diligent in our devotion. We're going to spend time with the Lord in prayer. We're going to understand his word. We're going to be diligent to this. We want to know him well. Second is this. We need to be consistent with our priorities. Be consistent with our priorities. Jesus, as he really begins his public ministry, uh, remember, John's just been imprisoned. Jesus comes, and he's preaching. As we said last week, we probably would have liked him just to done a miracle for John, escape from prison, something like that. That would have been really cool. But, but Jesus doesn't do that. Why? Because he's come to preach. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And even here in this section, Jesus himself says, this is why I came. I came to preach this message. This is, this is my ministry. I've come to preach, to let people know so they will rightly recognize who I am, that I am the Messiah. This is why he came. His, his purpose was not the miracles. Yes, he did a lot of them. But that, that was not his primary purpose. That all authenticated his message, caused people to trust that, yes, his message is real. But his message was to tell people. I'm afraid that sometimes in the American church that our priorities are all out of whack. That if people were to come into the church, and they were just to ask church people, uh, so what's your priority in life? Like, what's your number one priority in life? That they would hear just a whole variety of things. Uh, and when God, he's the one who sets the agenda. He's the one who has the authority. He's the one who gives us our talking points. And it's simply this. I've, I've made you, I've saved you for good works. Those good works to make disciples, to be my ambassadors. You are the called out sent ones. Yet sometimes I think we miss that. I think we forget that. I think other things become number one priorities. If you want to live the empowered life, you are consistent with your priorities. You're consistent with your priorities. And then the last principle is this, that we're urgent with our mission. Be urgent with your mission. As I said before, you'll see it throughout Mark's gospel, immediately, immediately, immediately. I mean, Jesus is a man on mission. He knows why he's there. He knows what he's doing. There's purpose, there's reason, there's action for it all. And so much of what he does, uh, it, it's, it's all for people. It's this message. And, I, and I was, as I was studying this week, this gave me a little more insight. I, I found this fascinating. That in these, in, at this time, by law, when you built a synagogue, it had to face west, okay? It had to face west. And so this is why this is important. When the people would come to synagogue in this area, they would all, when they were sit sitting, they would all be facing west. Whoever was teaching would be facing east. The one who's facing east is pointed to Jerusalem. So every time Jesus is in a synagogue and he's teaching, he's facing Jerusalem, He's facing the city where he'd one day be crucified. He's facing the city where, where people are going to beat him and mock him. He's facing the people 
who, who are going to put him to death. It's, it's forever before him. He knew what would ultimately happen. It's always there. It's always in front of him. And yet there's still this urgency to his mission. And we see in other places how he looks over Jerusalem and he just weeps for the city, for the people. Because he knows they're lost. He knows how desperately they need a savior. I fear sometimes we don't have that same urgency, do we? That we don't look over Portsmouth, Chesapeake, Suffolk, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, and just weep. There are so many people who don't know Jesus. And so without that, there's, there's this lack of urgency. I was talking to a pastor, and he said that he invited um, a, a pastor from China to come and to speak at his church. And they were kind of driving around. This is in the D.C. area. And they're kind of driving around D.C. And this pastor from China, he's, he's just looking around D.C. And then he just starts crying. And so my friend asked, like, why are you crying? He said, there's so many lost people here. There's such a desperate need for Jesus in this place. And my friend said he was so convicted. He said, I've never cried over D.C. like like this guy from China who's been here for five minutes and he's weeping over this place. I've never done that. Is there an urgency to your mission? With Jesus, there's an urgency. There's a desperation that this be accomplished, that we, that we live the mission we've been given. So you understand this, Jesus is the authority. That's what Mark is trying to wake us up to. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Do you recognize Jesus is the ultimate authority? Do you recognize him as the one who sets the agenda, who gives our talking points? Yes, politics, I'm not saying it's unimportant, but it's not the primary importance. What is primarily important is the message of Jesus and what we've been given, that he invites us into the privilege of that. Jesus is the authority. Anyone who says anything different is wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you do have the authority. And God, your authority is good, and it is right, and it is life-giving. It gives us a reason for being, a purpose in everything that we do. So God, forgive us for when our authority is, uh, or our agenda is shaped by other people, by ourselves, instead of by you. God, we recognize that to be the disciple-making church that you've called us to be, we need your help. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.